When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey guys, it's Allie. Welcome back to Infertile the podcast. This is episode 253 called Alyssa Aegis. All right, guys, my guest today is a badass. Her name is Alyssa Aegis and she is a Toronto-based New York-born author, a freelance writer and a copywriter. And she has a new book that just came out a couple of months ago and it's called Secrets of Giants, A Journey to Uncover the True Meaning of Strength. So Alyssa is also a mom of two, a strongman competitor, an endurance athlete. She's done six marathons, you guys, and an Ironman. She rock climbs, she does CrossFit, all this amazing athletic stuff, which we will talk about, and we're going to talk about her book, but we're also going to talk about her fertility and family building journey. We're going to talk about miscarriage. We're going to talk about IUIs, IVF pregnancy after loss and all the things. So guys, go check out her book. It's called Secrets of Giants, A Journey to Uncover the True Meaning of Strength. And without further ado, this is Alyssa's infertility story. Hi, Alyssa. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Thanks so much for doing this. I'm so glad you reached out. Thank you for having me. Yeah. I used to work with your husband a little bit. So let's yeah. start there. How did you guys meet? We met in undergrad um, at McGill. So we met when, gosh, I was like, I was 18. He was 19, but we were not together that whole stretch. We were sort of together for most of university and then off and then he moved to New York after I was living there and we were back together for a bit and then broken up for a bit and sort of on and off. And now we've been married for 12 years. Okay. So tell me about when did you guys start talking about like building a family and stuff? Like, was it right after you started dating or like after you became serious? Okay. (laughs) Same. (laughs) Yeah. It's one of those things where like, I think when you start dating somebody so early, you don't have any of those conversations. So you sort of have to hope, I guess, if it's going to go like long-term that, you know, when you do have those conversations, you're going to agree on them because we never really did. And I, I don't think I was sure my whole life that I wanted to have kids. I didn't really like, I was always maternal to my friends, but I didn't really have that, like that pull or that kind of maternal instinct towards kids. And I did, I really didn't know for a very long time. And we, we put it off for a really long time. Um, okay. so we, we got married, you know, we, again, we'd been together on and off for forever. Um, we didn't get married till we were 30 and 31. 
And then we were like, neither one of us was ready to just be like, sure, let's go have kids now. Right. Um, living in New York. And it's, I was <laughs> just going to say, plus New York, that was part of the problem with me was that we moved to New York when yeah. all of my friends in Chicago started having babies. And I was like, I can't have babies. I don't even know how to ride the subway in New York. Like this is not, oh, you know, that's yeah. it, right. You're just sort of like, it's, it, you know, if you have a kid at like 35 in New York, people are like, okay, like you're a child. That's ridiculous. Whereas, you know, other places in the country and in the world, people are, you know, have 15 year olds by then. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we just kind of were, we were focused on work. Um, and then eventually we wanted to travel. So we, I think I was, I would have been like 34 when we decided to go and do a year of travel. Where did you guys go when you traveled? Oh, we did. It was awesome. <laughs> we did a, a two month road trip of or one month road trip of the US. So we literally just, we rented a car and drove across the country. That's so fun. It was awesome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then we came back briefly, ditched the car and went around the world uh, for six months. Oh my God. That's like the dream. It was amazing. I'm so jealous. What was your favorite place? Around the world. Toss up between probably Patagonia and I really loved Morocco. Okay. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. And we also went to Bhutan, which is like this very, very small country in the Himalayas. That was really, really cool. That's amazing. All right. So let's fast forward a bit. And when did you guys start focusing on family and family building? So when we moved to Toronto, that was when we finally were living in a place like, despite the fact that this is a very big city too, um, when we got here, all of our friends here did have kids. Mm -hmm. So it kind of, I think, accelerated for us this, you know, this next step, but we were living in his brother's basement for a year. Okay. So, you know, not exactly the place where you want to have a kid, but Mm -hmm. it was about that time that we started thinking about it. And I I don't know if it was John who said it first or me, but I think both of us just kind of got to that point of being like, okay, yeah, I think we, I think we would like to do this. Right. And what did you know about your fertility? Like, what had you learned growing up? Nothing. Oh yeah. So I am nothing. And I'm like, this is my, my new soapbox is the fact that we tell girls their whole lives, right? We're like, oh my God, don't get pregnant. Like if you look at a boy, you are going to get pregnant. Do yeah. everything you can to not get pregnant because it can happen at any point in time. At, I know. Like, no matter what you, you just, you're just going to get pregnant. You're going to get pregnant. It's going to happen. It's that that's the theme of this podcast. Basically everybody yeah. says that everybody, yes. you know, and it's no from one me and the, you, yeah. Yeah. No one's like, Hey, maybe when you want to do it, it won't happen for you. And and it's not even just about age, right? Like no one says to you, you could start trying at 25 and it might not happen for you because that's just, there's just stuff going on in your body that you don't know about. Mm -hmm. Um, You don't know if you have PCOS. You don't know if you have low egg reserves. Like you don't know any of those things. No one says to us like, hey, get that stuff tested early. I just was at, uh, well, not just a couple months ago, I was at a pregnant dish event and everybody who spoke said, you know, I would say the the like prevailing commonality between everyone who spoke was no one told me to get my egg reserves tested. And it turns mm-hmm. out they're really low. Mm-hmm. How, how in a room full of 30 women do most of us have that situation? And still no one's telling us when we're younger that this is something we should get checked out. And that like this may play into when you choose to start a family or if you choose to freeze your eggs early or whatever it is, like you have your choices. It's mm-hmm. not just that like your ability to get pregnant diminishes 
as you age, but your choices diminish. Absolutely. Being given that choice. Yeah, such a good point. And I think I do think we're making a dent in it. I think we're making a difference now that so many more people are talking about fertility and, you know, just the fact that, like you said, you can't get pregnant so easily by like just looking at somebody, you know, there's, there's actually, it's, it's actually kind of hard to get pregnant. You know, there's a small window, even if everything with your fertility is normal. So, you know, I've, I've said before, like the fact that it happens at all, I think is it's like a total miracle. Like it's just so many things have to line up for it to happen. Yeah. And, Um, you know, not knowing that, but I did know, I think I knew that people in my life had, you know, experienced miscarriages. I for sure knew a number of friends who'd gone through fertility struggles mm-hmm. um, and who'd gone through IVF and, and all that. Oh, you did? Okay. So we were did. people talking yeah. about it like in your inner circle and stuff? Um, it wasn't like a group conversation because again, like living in New York, most of my friends were not having kids, mm-hmm. but the couple of them who did did go through, did have to, you know, go to fertility clinics and go through all that. One of my friends just, it was a very long struggle for her to get her period. So that was her, her kind of struggle. So she couldn't even start the process of trying to get pregnant. Mm -hmm. You know, another friend, I think she'd gone through, she'd done IUI. um, And I think was maybe doing IVF when she got pregnant. It's fuzzy because that was at least 10 years ago, but yeah, I knew about it. And then on top of that, my brother and my sister-in-law had been trying for a really long time and they had done everything you could possibly think of only to find out that, um, she would have trouble, um, carrying a pregnancy so they could get pregnant, but Mm. it wouldn't stick. That was my problem. Yeah. And eventually they went through surrogacy, um, and they have my nephew, which is incredible. Mm -hmm. Um, but that was also my first experience of knowing what, you know, knowing people who'd had a surrogate. Right. Exactly. Okay. So let's talk about when you and John started like to actually try like in earnest. Yeah. Yeah, So I think we'd been living here for, I don't know, maybe between six months and a year at that point and decided, okay, like we're going to start, we're going to start trying. And basically trying at that point for us was like, I'm just going to go off birth control. Mm -hmm. And almost right away, I'm pretty sure it was that first cycle I got pregnant. And to the point where like, I just didn't believe that that was what was happening. Um, wow. Okay. Yeah. I had, so the story with that was, um, I was, I, I trained in the sport of strongman. I was getting ready for right. a competition. I can't uh, wait to talk more about that. Okay. We'll, yes. we'll get into that in a second. Okay. <laughs> um, and we had, we had also, I should go backwards a little bit. We had thought we were going to try to get pregnant, I think the year prior. And then I made it to a provincial level of my strongman competition, which is just sort of like a level you have to qualify for. And I really wanted to do it. I'd never qualified for anything. So it was after that. uh, And the the lasting memory for me is I was in my gym. I was training with my coach. I was lifting um, an Atlas stone, which is like a big round boulder. And I remember feeling this like sudden sense of exhaustion that was very different from a, oh, this workout is hard. And I, I, I kind of knew something was off. Interesting. Um, yeah. I went home that day and I took a pregnancy test and I found out that I was pregnant. I didn't really know what to do because again, this was so quick. Right. Uh, I called, we had like, because we had also still just moved here. We didn't know anybody. We didn't have doctor. <laughs> we didn't have a doctor here, but John's, one of John's closest friends from high school is a doctor. So called her and she was like, okay, well, listen, if you... Like if the pregnancy test says you're pregnant, like you are pregnant in some capacity, right? Like you are, it's, it doesn't show false positive. It's just false negative sometimes, but you're not going to get a false positive. 
So go get a blood, go get blood work done. Got blood work done. Yes, I was pregnant. Um, and then, you know, you do that thing, that kind of dance for however many weeks of, um, you know, not, not telling anybody feeling like absolute garbage, but trying to hide it, like eating, you know, boxes of Mac and cheese because you can't stomach anything else, but it's all kind of like weird and wonderful. Right? And it's, because they're awesome, by the way. <laughs> also really good. Yes. Yeah. I yeah, mean, I okay. listen, I, I just boxes throw that out there. on a random Tuesday, totally. um, <laughs> but yeah, I went through like that whole you know, that whole period, I remember distinctly going out for dinner with somebody that we knew and going early um, and ordering like a mocktail and then telling the bartender, Hey, if I, if I ask for a vodka soda again, you know, give me this, this cup of seltzer, basically mm-hmm. um, all of that stuff that we do because we're told we're not supposed to say anything until the 12 sneaky. Weeks. Yeah, exactly. The sneakiness of, of it all, which is kind and of then, fun. Yeah. You're like, I've got okay. a secret. Yeah. <laughs> and at that point we found a doctor um, we found like a family doctor and we were getting ready to go. This was November. We were getting ready to go home for Thanksgiving. And I was, I don't even think I was six weeks yet when I asked her, but I was like, can I, can we do like the first ultrasound? Because, you know, if I can, like, I know you're not supposed to say anything, but if I can, like, it would be nice to tell my family in person, um, mm-hmm. even if it's just six weeks and went, did the ultrasound. And I remember, you know, I, I didn't really know the difference between the healthcare system here and at home, but I did for the most part know that in the U S like you, you do a test or whatever. And like, you find out the the thing right away, right. You find out what's happening with you right away. And very quickly learned that they don't do that. There's a sign on the wall that literally says technicians cannot share ultrasound results. Okay. So is this a Canadian thing? This is a Canadian thing. Okay. I I think. Um, again, I was never pregnant in the United States, so I have no idea. Mm-hmm. Um, but it felt like something different. Um, I, I, maybe it was just my experience of like watching movies, I guess, mm-hmm. because I don't really know, but you know, you see in the movies, they sit there and it's like, well, look, there's the baby. And so like right away, I was kind of like, okay, this is going to be different than what I think it's going to be, but you know, I'm supposed to be able to see a heartbeat. So like, I will see something and then I will know. And it doesn't really matter what she tells me. Right. And you realize like you can't see anything. But what I can tell is that even though she refuses to say anything, her face looks concerned. Oh God. And That's the worst feeling. Yeah. And I knew, I knew right away mm. um, that something was wrong. I have, and I, I wrote about this in the book because it was just, it's such a like, I remember everything about being in there. Someone asked me, you know, how much of what you wrote in your book do you remember and how much did you kind of embellish? And I was like, I remember everything about this appointment. I remember the color of the walls. Wow. Um, I remember it's so looking, weird how it like imprints on your imprints on your yeah, brain. Yeah. I remember looking at that sign that said technicians cannot share ultrasound results. And I remember trying to distract myself by counting the letters on the sign over and over again. I remember wondering if, you know, that sign had always existed or if they had it professionally printed or if they just like printed it out behind the counter when somebody, you know, berated them about sharing results one day. Like, oh, wow. You, you to distract yourself. And then she said nothing and we left and I emailed my doctor. I was like, what, what gives? And she was like, I don't, I don't know anything, but as soon as I know, I'll tell you. So two days later, I think it was, we were driving to the airport and she called back and said, okay, so they didn't see a heartbeat yet. It's still early. You know, okay. it doesn't mean, doesn't mean that, you know, it's not viable, but it, you, but you were correct that they didn't see anything. Right. That um, must've been a torturous two days though, that you had to wait. 
Oh, it's awful. Yeah. And what was going through your head and what was, you know, going through his head too. And as, as a team, as partners, like what were you guys thinking? You know, it's interesting that, that little snippet of time, I don't remember a lot of, but I do know that I was kind of preparing myself for the worst. I think I probably called our friend who's a doctor and and asked her about it. But I remember when I got that phone call and it was also, and the fetus was measuring like, you know, two days, like not, not a lot small, but at that, at that time, that's a lot. And she was like, listen, we're going to, I'm going to order you another one. You'll get it when you come back from New York. And we went home uh, and it was just this awkward thing where I was like, I can't, I don't know if this is actually viable. So I can't drink. I can't, you know, eat the baked brie my dad made. Like I can't do all these things that are such obvious tells when you, like if you've been pregnant, there's such an obvious tell that someone else is pregnant. And I knew my family was thinking that, but that I couldn't say anything and they weren't going to say anything. Right. And the whole thing of like, you wanted to tell them, but you couldn't. Yeah. I couldn't do all the things I wanted to do. And then we came home from that trip and I got a second ultrasound. And the, in that one, they said, I brought John with me. Um, and she said, okay, he can't come in the room with you, but we'll bring him in if there's something to show him. And then they didn't bring him in. And, uh, that was, that was really hard. Cause I knew, and I remember just crying in the parking lot. And my, my doctor at that point was like, okay, like at this point, you know, you're, we did, we did another blood test. Like my levels were dropping. This is not a viable pregnancy. This episode is brought to you by Vegamore. I'm always trying to do right by my body. So when it comes to my hair and scalp health, finding a product that actually works and is made with clean ingredients always seems like a trade-off, but with Vegamore, I get products that are made with clean ingredients and give me visibly healthy hair and scalp. With Vegamore, I am able to have noticeably thicker, fuller, shinier, longer hair, all without the harsh ingredients. Every cute pink bottle of Vegamore products are 100% cruelty-free and are never formulated with potentially harmful chemicals like parabens or hormones. Okay, so I got my box of Vegamore products and I've been using them all for the past month. The shampoo, the conditioner, the grow hair serum, the hair foam, the eyelash serum, the eyebrow serum. It's been about a month, like I said, and my hair really does feel stronger and thicker. Everything looks better. And the shampoo in particular, I have to say, smells really good. The key is consistency in your routine for your most beautiful, healthy looking hair. I use Vegamore Grow Hair Serum daily and my hair and scalp are feeling better than ever. Here's another cool thing. Vegamore has these great value kits like the Grow Essentials Kit, where you get to try more than one amazing product at a time at great savings. So when you sign up for a monthly subscription, you save more and you never run low on the products that you need. And fun fact, guys, Vegamore sells one bottle of the Grow Hair Serum every 15 seconds on their website. That's how good this stuff is. So here is the deal, my beautiful listeners. For a limited time, you can get 20% off your first order by going to vegamore.com slash infertileaf and using code infertileaf at checkout. That's V-E-G-A-M-O-U-R dot com slash infertileaf, code infertileaf to save 20% on your first order. V-E-G-A-M-O-U-R dot com slash infertileaf, code infertileaf. Thanks, Vegamore. 
And I think what's so interesting thinking back on it is, you know, I have heard stories. I know stories of people. I know people who have lost pregnancy significantly later in the game. And you, there's a part of you that I think over time minimizes what it felt like to go through a loss at such an early point in time, because it feels yeah. like my loss shouldn't be the same as anybody else's, but you do, I think, start right away thinking about what's, what's the rest of life looking like, you know, what, what yes, are these, absolutely. what is, you can't not like your brain goes to those places where it's planning. And, and that was, yeah. So, um, yeah, I, 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 so I just want to say like, that's one thing that I've really, really learned just from talking to so many people and, you know, doing this for four years now is that a loss is a loss is a loss. And that's always going to be my take on it. You know, it doesn't matter the gestational period. It doesn't matter if it's an embryo that didn't thaw. It doesn't matter if it's a failed cycle where you didn't get any embryos or a bad egg retrieval where you didn't get an, you know, I, I, I feel like, you know, we always say this isn't the pain Olympics. Like nobody's going to be like, well, you were, and I know every loss is different. So I also don't want to minimize anybody's story, but I think it's just to say that as women, we have been conditioned to be like, well, I wasn't that far along or oh, it was only this, or it was only, it's okay. But I don't, I think that's bullshit. Like, I think we should sit in our grief and embrace it and validate it. And if you're in pain, you're in pain. And yeah. You know, that's that's my take on it is that it doesn't matter if it's early, doesn't matter if it's at this point or that point or whatever. I think it's all really fucking hard. And my heart goes out to anybody that experiences a loss. It's a loss of a dream, you know? Yeah. Yes. That's that's a really good way to put it, right? Is yeah, no matter what, and your dream is in theory the same. So after that, she sent me to um, it was right after that actually visit that my body started like that kind of initial process of, um, of miscarrying. It was almost immediately. It was like, it was ready to let go. Like, okay, you've got confirmation now, mm-hmm. but another ultrasound showed that there was still tissue. So actually I'm getting my timeline wrong on that. So after this, she, my doctor said, do you want to do a DNC or do you want to do the, the pill, the mesoprostol pill? And so I, I did that because I didn't want to do anything invasive yet. Mm-hmm. And I remember just like sitting on the couch waiting for pain because they tell you how bad it's going to be. And I had all of this cramping and all of this discomfort in addition to all of the sadness and then like nothing, get barely past anything. And that was when I went in for another ultrasound and they were like, yeah, there's still a ton of tissue there. You have to go in for the DNC now. Mm-hmm. And this oh, is so sorry. This is the thing when I tell people that it's like, how the day that my DNC was scheduled for in the hospital, I was on, it was like, I don't know, the first or second floor, two floors up, my sister-in-law was giving birth. Oh God. So sorry. That must've been torture. And I'm the kind of person who really compartmentalizes things. So, and in fairness, by this point, so this is like Again, Canadian healthcare, this is a month long period between when I found out that this was not a viable pregnancy to when I was able to have this DNC and move on with my life. Mm-hmm. So by the time I had it, it wasn't even really the sadness of like the loss anymore. It was just like, I just, why can't you let me move on? Like, why can't I just get this done and move on with my life? And so afterwards, when I like, you know, came to from the anesthesia and whatever and was able, was allowed to leave. We literally took the elevator up and went and met the newborn baby. Oh God. Yeah. yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. You are a badass for being able just, to do that. 
compartmentalizing, you know? Yeah. It was just, I mean, I was just, I think I was just like, what do you do? You you move on. Right. You just, you go on with life. I, I don't know. I still think about that as like, I don't know how I did that. And it's probably a a bit of adrenaline as well. Yes. Which I'm sure you know a lot about from your athleticism and all the competitions and stuff. Right. Yes. Yeah. And then by, I don't remember what month it was, but basically shortly after that, my doctor, um, she had herself gone through a lot of fertility struggles. Um, she ended up adopting a child and then eventually getting pregnant on her own. Um, the point of that is to say she was very, very empathetic. So when I told her that I was just like, I just want to, like, I'm getting older. I just want to figure something out. She was like, I'm technically not supposed to send you to a fertility clinic until you've been trying for a year, but like. I know, I know where you are and I'm just going to, just going to get you in. Um, so between her and my sister-in-law who had also been to a clinic, the two of them got me in to see, to see someone. Um, okay. and that was when the testing showed, yeah, you've got low egg reserves. Mm. Um, and so the doctor right away was basically like, I'm going to let you go through like some cycle monitoring and maybe we'll try IUI, but if that doesn't work, like we're going to do IVF right away. Okay. How old were you at this point? 36. Okay. I think. And so, yeah, we did the, we did the monitoring, which is like, I don't know, I think kind of its own special form of hell. Where you what did that like, look like for you? Cause I know it's different depending what you're going yeah. through. It's just like, I don't, I, it was, I wrote about it because it was so, it struck me as so odd. Like you, you get there at 6am, you get there early. So you can be the first one in line. And eventually you learn that there's this process of like, you know, you have to pick, you have to get three different numbers, right? You have to get uh, your ultrasound, your blood work, and then your sign up on the, on the board for the doctor. And you learn pretty quickly that there's like an order you want to do things because one moves slower than the other. So like mm-hmm. you sign up for your doctor first, you want to be the first one on that board. Then you want to grab your number for the ultrasound. And then the last one is blood work. Cause that moves really quickly. Like you see pro <laughs> tips. Okay. Full pro tips. Yeah. Um, I remember taking a picture one day when I got one for the ultrasounds and I was like, yes, you're like, I'm yeah, in the system. Killing it. <laughs> I also remember thinking like people would you know, and at the time I didn't really understand. Now I have a lot more respect for not respect, but I have a lot more understanding and empathy for secondary infertility. Um, but you'd see a lot of times people would have their babies, their kids there. And I was like, oh, like that's so rough, but you understand, you know, eventually you understand like maybe you don't have childcare at 6am. Yes. But it was as a secondary infertility person myself, I, I didn't bring my daughter to appointments, thankfully, because my husband was home watching her when I had to go in early, but I get it. And yes, it is a, it's a different, it's a totally different experience too. Yeah. But I do remember making friends in the waiting room and just, you know, I talked to people whenever I could, anybody who would make eye contact, I would talk to. Yeah. Uh, And I did the cycle monitoring for a while. And then eventually we did IUI and IUI ended up in a chemical pregnancy which again, it's super short lived, but you get, you get the, you get the high number one day and you get your right. hopes up, right? Yes. Yes. And it was after that, that the doctor was like, okay, at this point, I think next cycle, we need to start you on, on IVF. Okay. So okay. let me backtrack just one second and pause and say, how were you guys doing and how were you doing mentally? God, terribly. I mean, uh, you know, it was like every pregnant person on the street felt like a personal affront. Mm-hmm. You know, every friend who got pregnant, it just felt like it felt it felt personal. Mm-hmm. I had, yeah, I just 
like I was happy for people, but I had a lot of trouble being like truly happy. Um, my best friend got pregnant during this time and I was happy for her, but it was really hard. Mm -hmm. Um, She also got pregnant really quickly and really easily. Yes. You know, we talk about that a lot too, in fertility rally and just in general that it's so, you know, growing up, you're taught again, you know, you can be happy or you can be sad, but like the fact of the matter is you can be both. You can be happy for them and so devastated and sad for yourself. So just want to normalize that too, for people who are listening that it's confusing because you're like, what's good. It's like a mind fuck too. You're like, wait, am I like the worst person in the world? But like, I am happy, but I'm also like crushed, you know? Another, like one of my closest friends, I remember she, and she was one of the people who'd been going through struggles earlier. And I called her when, when my best friend got pregnant, I called her and said like, I don't know how to feel about this. And I know that, you know, and she had gone through the same thing. And she was like, it's okay for you to feel however you're going to feel. She's like, and it's also okay for you to tell her that like, mm. she's going to understand. And and she mm-hmm. did end up giving me the freedom to say something. And it was like, that just really helped. It was a, it was just a lot of like, I don't know, trying to go through life as normal, but just being, being sad about a lot of it. Um, mm-hmm. I, you know, part of the impetus for writing my book was actually the fact that the only thing that really helped during this time was going to the gym. Okay. Um, Yeah. So let's talk about that, like exercise and going through fertility treatments. What's your experience with that? And what do you know about that? I had a really great doctor who was basically like, listen, like while you're going through kind of this part of everything, like just you can do whatever you're doing. It's fine. Like you don't mm-hmm. really have to take it down that much. And when he eventually, when I when I did get pregnant, he was like, my recommendation to you is going to be for the first 12 weeks that you don't do anything like too intense. And he was like, and I want to be clear. It's not because that's going to cause anything to happen. And it's not because you caused your first miscarriage to happen because that was, um, I had a lot of guilt about that. I really oh, thought yeah. like, I caused the miscarriage of this pregnancy that I didn't know I had. Um, Mm -hmm. He was like, I just, if you lose this one, I don't want you to blame yourself. And he's like, so I just think the safest thing for you is just to not do anything this way. If it, if that happens, and again, it's not going to be your fault no matter what, but if that does happen, you don't, you don't have guilt about it. Mm -hmm. Um, But you know, it was, I kind of fell back first on running because I'd been a runner for years And I would find that I would go out and I would, I never used to run with music. I'd put on music when I would run and I would cry and run at the same time, like run as fast as I could and cry. And it was very, very cathartic. But when I came home, I always felt like I was back in the same place I'd been. Like once that runner's high wore off, Mm. I was just back in that same place of sadness. Mm -hmm. What really helped me was I went back to lifting weights and I have a, uh, really, really, really phenomenal coach who worked with me knowing what, you know, what my limits were, Mm -hmm. um, and also trying to make me feel strong. So my gym, I don't really know why they have them, but they have these gigantic plates. They're just 45 pounds, but they're like this thick. They look like me toy company. Um, You would put them on the barbell for me to lift because it felt, and it looked like I was doing more than I was. Uh Uh-huh. It's brilliant. Um, Yeah. But one of my, so, and I remember during this time, I was just like, this helps in ways that I didn't really understand. Like 
lifting for me had been about competing before and like pushing my limits and seeing what I could do. Mm-hmm. And then it became this really like, you know, kind of ultimately pretty aggressive practice became much more about healing. Um, I love I didn't that. understands it at the time. It mm-hmm. did, I was just like, this is working. I don't know why. Mm-hmm. When I went through the process of researching the book, I spoke to a couple of people who do, who practice trauma-informed weightlifting, which is basically gone oh, wow. through trauma and they use weightlifting as a means of healing from trauma. Mm-hmm. Through talking to them, I realized that, so the best way I can explain it is like, let's say I'm going for a heavy deadlift, right? To do that, I have to brace my core muscles in order to um, make sure that my back is protected. Uh, let's say I'm wearing a weight belt maybe for that. And when you brace, you feel your you feel your stomach press against the belt. And if I'm going to lift that barbell and I'm going to lift it safely, I have to, in the moment that I'm doing that, I have to believe that this part of my body that has been the site of so much weakness and pain and sadness and vulnerability is also a place of strength. Mm. Otherwise, I can't, I'm, I'm not gonna be able to do anything safely. And so they really taught me that, you know, one of the best things about lifting for people who've gone through something traumatic is that it you are forced to trust your body. Yes. You can't do what you're doing. It's like taking the power back. Yeah. You Mm -hmm. know, running didn't do that for me. Running, I was just like, I can do this in whatever state I'm in. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. I had to be, yeah. Like I had to be present for this. I couldn't Mm -hmm. let my mind or I had to believe Mm -hmm. that my body was strong. Mm -hmm. And that's not to say that, you know, because I lifted weights, I believed that I was going to get pregnant or like my body could, you know, support a pregnancy. Those those two things are not, those aren't, they, they don't make sense together necessarily, but uh, it allowed me to see my body as stronger. And that was mm-hmm. really impactful. Yeah. And as an athlete, that must've been a really important step for you. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. That's cool. I just got the yeah. chills. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And I ended up so, okay. So we'd had that, that IUI cycle and then I, we went, he was like, okay, I, I want to start you on IVF. And I said, um, okay, I'd like to take a, a month off. Like I just, I need a break. I don't want to come into the clinic. Like just, can I just have a month where like, I don't do anything with you? He was like, yep, yeah, that's fine. And a couple of weeks later, I like remember waking up in the morning. I was bleeding. I was like, okay, this is, I've got my period. Fine. Day two, you're supposed to go into the clinic. Day two of your cycle, you're always supposed to go in. So day two, I go in. And I do the blood work, I do the ultrasound, I go, I sit in with the doctor and he's like, okay, are you ready to start IVF? Yep, sure. He starts to explain everything to me. He fills out the prescription for the drugs and um, he's like, okay, I'm going to take you to the nurses. Now they're going to show you how you do, you do the injection. And I don't mm-hmm. know why, but as we were standing up, I said, I don't know if this is worth mentioning, but like, yeah, it's day two, but it's it, like, it feels kind of like my period's really light. I don't, he's like, you know what, just for safety's sake, let me call the the lab and see what your blood work results were. Okay. And he was like, I don't have the full results yet, but they can see that your progesterone levels are elevated. Okay. He's like, I can't, I can't start you on IVF drugs right now because you might be pregnant. Mm-hmm. So, oh, okay. And he's like, go home. I'll call you in a couple hours when I have the results. And sure enough, the results showed that I was pregnant. Oh my um, God. I am very careful when I tell that story because the worst thing that you can hear when you're going through pregnancy tr- struggles is just relax and it'll happen. 
what I always feel like I have to have to highlight about that cycle is that I was not relaxed. Mm -hmm. I knew that I was ovulating in the week that I was ovulating. Yeah. We just weren't getting it monitored. Like we Mm -hmm. were still trying. We were out of town. We were at a wedding. Mm -hmm. We were still trying with the full knowledge that like this was the one week that I could get pregnant. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it wasn't, it didn't just happen. It didn't happen. Right. Yeah. Cause I think that is probably really frustrating or I know for (laughs) sure that it is frustrating for people to hear sometimes. And um, I had somebody on the show recently who was like, I hate to be this person, but like, it happened, you know, like naturally after all this yeah. trying and stuff. And, and I, I hate telling that, that story for that reason. Yeah. But that's um, because you're empathetic and you've been through this <laughs> and you care about other people's feelings. And so I appreciate that. Yeah. And yeah, so that that turned out that I was pregnant. It was a um, very uneventful pregnancy, minus the fact that for the first, you know, three months, I wasn't allowed to do physical activity. And I remember going to like, prenatal yoga and just being like, this is just breathing in a room full of other pregnant people. (laughs) (laughs) Right. No disrespect to prenatal yoga, but it was not for me. Right. Did Um, you have that, you know, pregnancy after loss anxiety that so many of us have? Yes. Oh my God. I don't think, tell me about that. Like, I don't want to say this is the worst thing about it, but like one of the worst things about when you go through fertility struggles and loss is that it takes away, it takes away the excitement that I think we all feel like we're supposed to have when you Mm -hmm. get pregnant. Like I would see people post about their pregnancies, like right at, you know, at that 12 week mark or right after they found out they was, they were pregnant. And I was like, Oh my God, like, don't do that. Like I I felt like I had this feeling of like, I want to tell you not to do that because you don't know, you don't know if it's going to stick. And I, you know, I think like that, that naivete is, I was jealous of it. Mm. Jealous that people could just be out there in the world telling people they were pregnant. Like right. I, the only people who knew that I was pregnant during that time were people who saw me. Mm-hmm. There's nothing about it on my social media. I, at the time I ran a wellness website. And so we put it on like that social media because it wasn't personal for me. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to talk about prenatal workouts, but no, I was terrified all the time. Um, yeah. I also had like bleeding throughout a bunch of the pregnancy. So every single time you see that, it's terrifying. I had to hold back from buying one of those like little Doppler things where you can like listen to the heartbeat at home. Cause I was like, there's just no, I will do that all the time. I know. I feel like there's like the camp that does that and the camp yeah. that doesn't also it's like the early testers and the not early testers. I was and not listen, an early tester. At, yeah. yeah. If you're at a fertility clinic also, at least here, like they monitored me for 12 weeks. So, you know, I at least had 12 weeks where I went in once a week and had somebody go, yep, things are good. Mm-hmm. Which most people don't get in their pregnancies. But I, I mean, I was, I don't know. I was scared until the day I gave birth until, until she was sitting there on my chest. I was scared. Um, right. Exactly. And, you know, it's se- second time around, same thing. It's just, I don't know. Like, you don't, it kind of, it robs you of that, that excitement that you want to be able to have. It's almost like the ignorance is bliss stuff that you have when you haven't gone through infertility or loss or miscarriage or whatever it is. You don't, you can't have that. It just doesn't exist. And, you you know, we always say infertility robs people of so much. And that's one of the things is like that genuine excitement, you know, not to say you can't be happy and excited at certain points, but the like unabashed, like bliss, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And then, yeah, my second, we we got pregnant pretty quickly the second time around. I, I had been back at the clinic because they just told me, they were like, when you want to get pregnant again, just come back here right away. Don't even try. Okay. Just come right okay. back. 
Yeah. So I, we were just doing monitoring. Uh-huh. And she was, it was a very, like, it was pretty easy pretty early on. I didn't have, I was, I worked out through that, that whole pregnancy. I ran until I was 30 weeks, but. Amazing. Amazing. I can't even yeah. run now. Like <laughs> <laughs> With her, and I, you know, again, you still, you don't feel easy the whole time with her. We had a real scare at our 20 week, um, our 20 week ultrasound where there were like two things that they were concerned about that were one of them would have potentially been cause for termination. And you're 20 weeks at that point. Like that was terrifying. I had to get, I ended up getting an amnio um, just to confirm that everything was okay. And, you know, oddly enough in the end, like both things that they saw just like resolved themselves. She's fine. But it was, yeah, that was really, really terrifying. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk more about your book. Tell me about when did you decide that you wanted to write it? How did you come up with it? You mentioned the um, Atlas, like that's your book cover, yeah. basically, like, the t- t- you know, carrying the boulder on your back. So tell tell us everything. Yeah, um, I, gosh, I had the idea for it. Um, so I turned 40 the same year as I kind of got out of the like, infant stage with my second child. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was, I hit this point where I was like, I didn't want to, I knew I didn't want to get pregnant again. And I was like, okay, for the last five years, the primary focus of my life and my body has been to get pregnant, stay pregnant, feed a small human with my body or like bounce back from all those things. And I was like, what, I, my body's kind of mine again. Like, what can I do with it? And I decided, okay, I, I want to, I want to find out. I want to see just like how strong I can get. It was this first taste of like bodily autonomy and what I have to imagine is my entire mm-hmm. life right? Like you're kind of told for your, for your whole life, what you're supposed to do with your body. And it was something, something around turning 40 where I was like, I don't think anyone cares anymore. <laughs> I was right. like, I'm going to do whatever I want to do. Is this yes. like moment of freedom? I love that. And yeah, it was like, I, I want to not only see how strong I can get, but I wanted to explore why it had impacted me so much. Um, you know, this was something I've been doing for years, but I never really stopped to think about why is this so why is this such a part of my life? Mm-hmm. I've done so many different sports. Why have I stuck with this one for longer than anything else? Mm-hmm. And so as part of this journey, I decided, okay, well, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna write my own story of trying to do this, but I'm also going to interview athletes and coaches and scientists and researchers and really try to get to the bottom of like why what does the pursuit of strength matter so much in our lives? Like how does it impact our lives in ways outside of just a gym setting. Mm-hmm. And that's not just the sport of strongman, like what I do. It's it's everything. It's lifting dumbbells in your gym, right? It's doing mm-hmm. push-ups on your floor and in your in your bedroom. Um, right. what what does feeling strong do for us? It was this year-long journey um in which I set a really strange goal of pulling a 50-ton truck uh with my body. And there was something really actually poignant about that, um, which meant a lot to me, which was that when I, when I had miscarriage, um, the competition I was, I I was training for was this one back home in New York is this annual competition. Um, it included a truck pull. I was super excited about it and I probably could have trained and gone there, but I didn't, I don't know. I didn't have the will to like train hard for something. It just wasn't in me at the time. 
And the competition that I I went to, I remember when I was like, okay, I want to pull a truck. And I went and I looked on the website of events and I was like, let me find one. And the one that came up was that event. Oh five years later. And I was like, that's it. I'm supposed like, to, I'm supposed to go I got to do it. All right, universe. I hear you. Yep. And, um, and when I signed up and, and I went to do it, like my daughters were there, they got to watch me. Oh, yeah. What did they was... think of that? And how old were they? How old were they <laughs> I when thought they were? it was going to be the biggest deal in the world for them. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I, I did it. I pulled the truck and I ran over to my older daughter and I was like, mommy pulled the truck. Like, did you see, wasn't that like the best thing ever? And she just kind of like, she's sitting in this like lounge chair in the shade because it was really hot. She sort of looks up at me and she was like, yeah, but, uh, mommy, could we go to that playground over there now? Oh my God. That's yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Over there now. Let's, let's go. Exactly. Give me some ice cream, mom. (laughs) Um, that's amazing. Yeah. They did not give a shit at the time. Now, now even, all right. Even Brad Pitt's kids don't think he's cool. (laughs) Well, I guess I shouldn't say that because he's in like a controversy, but even Julia Roberts' kids probably don't (laughs) think she's cool, right? Yeah. Now Um, they think that like strength is cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I love that your book is called Secrets of Giants. And like we said on the cover, it's like someone, you know, holding the world on their shoulders, which I'm sure, tell me about that imagery. What does that mean to you? It's got to have a bunch of different meanings, right? Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I had nothing to do with it. They just like my publisher sent me two options for covers and it wasn't even a question. Like that one was just yeah. it. It was there's a strange like kind of connection which they couldn't have known, which is just like as a kid, I was obsessed for some weird reason that still I don't really understand with the sculpture of Atlas in front of um uh, Rockefeller Center. Oh my god, how cool. Just, okay, yeah, that's another okay. universe wink, right? Yeah. And so, like, and then they drew me doing that. Um, but yeah, I think it's, you know, people have interpreted it as like women holding up the weight of the world, mm-hmm. uh, having the strength to do that. Mm-hmm. So that's been really cool. Yeah. And I love that, you know, you, like you said, you kind of weave in the story of miscarriage and loss and overcoming and all that stuff. So tell me how, for somebody that, you know, is maybe new to this world of family building and struggle, like what have you learned about, you know, what you went through? Like, what do you, what do you know now that you kind of wish you knew then when you were having a really hard time? Uh, I think the biggest thing would have been, um, and I don't know if I would have done it, but I wish I had like been more open about it with people. Mm. Um, I wish that I had asked for more support when I, when I was open about it, that was when I started finding all these other people in my life who had gone through miscarriage or fertility struggles. And I just didn't know. And I think it kind of was like sitting there waiting for people to like come to me and, and show more sympathy. And some did, but a lot of people, because I didn't, I didn't, I tried not to show that anything was wrong. Like I'm very much people pleaser to the core. So when I was out and about and doing things, I tried to just look like everything was normal. And when you do that, people are going to treat you like everything is normal. And, you know, now if I know somebody who's going through that, even if they're acting that way, I'm going to try to help as much as I can and just be like, Hey, listen, you, it's cool. Like we can talk about it. But yeah, I wish I would have given myself the kind of grace to just feel how I was feeling. The only thing I did during that time that I still feel really good about was, um, I was invited to a baby shower and I was like, and it was, it was the day, the day of the baby shower. I had RSVP'd yes, I was going to go. 
I was the wife of like one of my husband's closest friends. And the day of her shower, I got my period. And I'd been hoping that, you know, that was going to be a cycle where I got pregnant. And I called up um, a mutual friend who I knew was going, who had, she'd recently had a baby, but she had gone through a ton of struggles. And she was like, do not go. Don't go. She's like, if you don't want to tell her why, that's fine. Make something up. Just say like, you're not feeling well, whatever it is, but do not put yourself through that. And I was like, oh, it was breathe. You know, I had the permission to just allow myself to give myself that bit of grace in that moment. All right, guys, thank you so much to Alyssa for sharing her story and hi to my former colleague, John, her husband. Thank you guys so much for being a part of the show. Go check out Alyssa's book. Also, speaking of books, guys, go check out my new children's book, which is available for pre-order now. I'm so excited about it. It's called Work of Art. It's the story of an IVF kiddo. The day he learns he is a work of art born via IVF and assisted reproductive technology. My whole goal here is to normalize the conversation around IVF and ART and all the things in family building that are a little bit different. And it's such a sweet story. I'm really proud of it. Thank you so much to everybody who's purchased it so far, bought it for their friends, bought it for their future little ones, bought it for their current babies. I'm personalizing and numbering and shipping free in the US the first 150 copies. We're almost there. So hurry and get yours. You can go to infertileafgroup.com slash books. Again, that's infertileafgroup.com slash books. Or you can go to the link in my bio at infertileafstories on Instagram. But I can't think you guys enough. I've been wanting to write a book for so long and I'm really love it. And I hope you guys love reading it and sharing it as much as I loved writing it. So thanks again. I'll talk to you guys soon. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.